Church, I got to tell you, I am so excited and anxious to begin this new message series with you guys. I have longed to to do a series through the through the book of Romans, and I've I've preached through different parts of Romans before. And they're so powerful. Like, I love it when you get to Romans chapter 12 and it's the application of your faith and how you're supposed to live and what you're supposed to do and what it's all supposed to look like and what it all represents. But the reality is you can't justly do chapter 12 and beyond without first adequately understanding the theological foundation that sets the whole course of the book from from chapters 1 through 11. And a lot of time we want to skip to the application without diving in into the theological foundation. So we're going to dive in. Uh, originally I had lofty goals of, of covering the introductions from verses 1 through 7. And as I said last week, well those goals are shot. That's not going to happen today. Truth be told, we won't get out of verse number 1. Truth be told, we probably won't get out of verse number one next week either. I think three weeks to verse one and we should be okay to move forward. I don't anticipate every verse taking three weeks, but it'll take however long it takes for us to fully understand, appreciate, and rightly apply it to our lives. When I think about Romans, I think about Martin Luther There was one scripture above all others that brought Martin Luther out of mere religion and into the joy of salvation by grace through faith. And that uh, one verse came from Romans chapter 1, verse number 17. There it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. About this one particular verse, Martin Luther would say that here, Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but he's talking about a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people who have no righteousness on their own. He, he would go on to call this uh, justitia alium, Latin for uh, alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that belongs to somebody else. About this, Luther said, when I discovered that, I was born again by the Holy Ghost. And the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked And praise be to God that he did, because that was the foundation from which the Protestant Reformation was born. Then it was on May 24th of 1738 that John Wesley reluctantly agreed to, uh, to attend a group meeting at Aldersgate Street in London. At this group meeting, they were reading, and they were reading from a commentary from Martin Luther. They were just in the introduction, and as they were reading through some of that introduction in this meeting that he was reluctant to attend, uh, John Wesley says at that point, his heart felt strangely warm. He would write in his journal that it was on that day, on that night, it was actually around 8.45 p.m., 
while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So on that day, John Wesley experienced the assurance of his salvation. And he became a catalyst for the great revival of the 18th century. So both the Protestant Reformation and the Wesleyan revival were the fruit of the letter that we're about to study. I mean, here's the thing. We get to read, we get to study, we get to reflect upon the same letter that brought both life and power to Martin Luther and John Wesley. How, how awesome is that? Just think that the same Holy Spirit that brought life and understanding into them is available to do the same unto us. Man, what, what could happen? Imagine what could happen if we truly took to heart the teaching and the understanding of the book of Romans and lived it out in the midst of our community. I don't know about you, but that gets me a little bit excited. Extremely anxious, in a good way, to see what will happen as we go through this journey together. And so before we read verse number one, let's pause. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this journey of unknown weeks, months, perhaps even years, Father, I pray that you will guide us all the way. Give us an ear to hear. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Romans chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart, for the gospel of God. Talk about a few things, first of all. We'll talk about the who, the where, and the when uh, to get us started. Who? Who wrote this letter? Well, thankfully, he identifies himself. He identifies himself as Paul. Uh, There's really no debate among scholars as to the authenticity of Paul uh, being the originator of this letter. Now, Paul, if you'll turn over real quick to Romans chapter 16, Paul, as was his custom, would often use scribe or secretaries to to physically write the letter to which he would dictate for them to write. And this book is an example of that. In this case, the scribe that he used was somebody by the name of Tertius. In chapter 16, verse number 22, we see that it says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So the author of the letter is Paul, but the scribe, the one who penned the letter, was his assistant named Tertius. So there's the who, right? And then when we begin to think about where, where where did Paul write this letter from? Where was Paul at when when he penned these words? We get several indicators are given to us, specifically in chapter 16. There there are quite a few indicators. I'll give you one. I want you to notice that he sends his greetings from an individual named uh, Gaios. Gaios was also serving as his host. Look at the very next verse in verse number 23. It says, Gaios, host to me, 
and to the whole church greets you. Now that's significant because that's giving us an understanding on where Paul was when he wrote this letter. Because if you go back to 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we'll know that Gaius was a part of the Corinthian church. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, Gaius is identified as one of the individuals that Paul actually baptized. So, so Paul is in Corinth, in Greece. Gaius is, is hosting him while he's there. And it's at that time that he pens these words. So we know the who, uh, we know the where, and when we talk about the time frame, I believe uh, the verses will show us that uh, this letter was written probably in the mid-50s, roughly 20 years after uh, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord. And based on understanding because of Paul's rebuke, go over uh, to chapter 13 real quick. And based on understanding because of his rebuke that the Romans would pay their taxes, and I think this rebuke helps us to understand the timeline. In Romans chapter 13, verse number 6, it says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This likely reflects the unrest and the formal protests that were occurring over taxes in Rome under the leadership of Nero. And so this would have occurred prior to A.D. 58. If, you, if you'd like to know a timeline, I think it's safe to assume it's in the mid-50s. So now that we know the who, we get the, the where, we, we understand kind of the when, well, let's look at the what. What is he saying? And in this first verse, Paul is saying, Oh, so, so much. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That word bond servant is a Greek word, doulos. Doulos, in my translation that I'm reading from today, in the New American Standard, renders that as servant. Also, if you have the NIV, the ESV, the New King James Version, all render doulos as servant. The only modern translation that I've come across, I'm sure there might be others, but the New Living Translation actually translates it correctly and translates it as slave. See, the correct translation and understanding of the word doulos is not servant. It's actually slave. Ironically, the Greek language has at least a half a dozen different words to describe a servant. And doulos is not one of those words. Whenever doulos is used in the New Testament or whenever it's used in other secular Greek literature, doulos always and only means slave. And so while the duties of servant and slave may overlap to a certain degree, it is also true that there are distinct differences between a servant and a slave. And think about it. Servants are hired. Slaves are owned. Servant 
has an element of freedom in choosing to whom they will work and from what they will do. There seems an element of freedom. They can choose whom they're going to work for, and they can kind of choose what they want to do. A slave has no choice. They have no choice but to obey the one to whom they belong. And I think that's a key indicator on what's wrong with the church today. We have a servant mind thinking that we get to pick and choose who we're going to serve and when we're going to serve. Rather than having the servant mind, we need to have the slave mindset. We are called to be obedient and to serve the one that owns us. And if you're a believer in Christ, then you are owned, you have been bought, you have been purchased by the blood of our Lord and Savior. So a servant in in the ancient world was a hired employee. It was a person that could come and go at will. A person could, could resign from one job and seek employment somewhere else, but a slave didn't have such a choice. A slave was owned by their curios, or curios. Uh, that's the Greek word that we render as lord or master. So to become somebody's slave meant that you were that person's possession, bound to obey the master's will without hesitation, without disagreement, without argument. You obeyed what your master tells you to do. And frequently in the New Testament, this type of imagery is used to portray the relationship that exists between Christ and his people. You see places like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes in verses 19 and 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price therefore glorify god in your body so christians are those that belong to christ he is our curios he is our lord he is our master now in in the new testament there were millions of slaves in the roman empire the vast majority of those uh, whom were slaves were were forced into slavery and they were kept there by law now some of the more educated or skilled slaves held significant places or positions within a household and they were treated with considerable respect but that was rare that that wasn't the 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 most likely thing because most slaves were treated much like any person's personal property they were considered little better than the actual work animals slaves had virtually no rights under the law a slave could be killed by their master and their master would have been exempt from punishment but at the same time the old testament presents the possibility of a person entering into that position voluntarily. Someone could choose to stay and to remain a slave under the rule and will of their master. In Exodus chapter 21, it says in verses 5 and 6, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I I will not go out as a free man. 
then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him permanently. This practice reflects the essence of what Paul is trying to describe in verse number one when he uses that word doulos. Long before Paul was able to call or to consider himself a slave of Jesus Christ, he gained the reputation of being the enemy to believers. Paul was zealous for the Jewish faith. And he sought to to persecute followers of Jesus without mercy. I mean, we are first introduced to Paul in Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, he, he was there to approve or, or to, to give the blessing to the, the stoning of the, the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And, and, and then uh, we're told that he sets out for, for Damascus, and he's going to Damascus to, to go and to seek and to find and to punish other believers. But it was on that road to Damascus that, that Paul comes face to face with Jesus Christ himself. And ultimately, through a series of events, Paul confesses and believes and becomes a child of, of the King of Kings. Paul's own account of these events are recorded in Acts chapter 26. So in love, Paul gave himself wholeheartedly to be a slave of our Lord. In response to what Christ had done unto him, Paul said, I'll give you my life. My life now belongs to you. I will serve, I will do, I will go wherever you send me. So uh, look at the slave market or slave process in, in the Old Testament. If you had a better understanding of what that looked like then, perhaps it would give us greater clarity and insight and understanding of what that word means to us today. So what did Paul mean when he said that he was a slave of Jesus Christ? Let me give you a couple of things here. First of all, the slave was owned by his master. The slave was owned by their master. They were the total possession of their master. That's what Paul meant. Paul understood that he was purchased, he was possessed by Jesus. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 20, for you have been bought for a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. He had been purchased. He knows it. Jesus had looked upon Paul. He, he saw his degraded and needful condition. And as Christ looked upon Paul, a most wonderful thing happened. He, he brings him from, from death unto life. Paul believes and begins to follow, submitting and surrendering his life, his will unto the Lord. And, and so we know that the slave was owned by their master. Number two. The slave served his master, and in fact, they existed only for the purpose of service. So number one, the slave was owned by the master. Number two, the slave serves the master, and in fact, their existence was only for that service. A slave was at the master's disposal anytime, any day. And so it was with Paul. 
He lived to serve Christ and Christ alone, hour by hour, day by day, night by night. I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say about verse number 1 of Romans chapter 1. When reading and studying upon it, Charles Spurgeon wrote these words. He says, where our, our authorized version softly puts it servant, it really is bond slave. The early saints count themselves Christ's absolute property, bought by him, owned by him, and wholly at his disposal. Paul even went as so far as to rejoice that he had the marks of the master's brand on him. And he cries, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. There was the end of all debate. He was the Lord's. And the marks of the scourges, the rods, and the stones were the broad arrow of the king, which marked Paul's body as the property of Jesus the Lord. Now, if the saints of old time glorified in obeying Christ, I pray that you and I may feel that our first object in life is to obey the gets it he understands it he 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 embraces that that calling and that expectation in life and so as scripture and the voices of church history have have made abundantly clear our slavery to jesus has radical implications on how we think how we feel what we do and ultimately how we live our lives let me give you another truth number three The slave's will belonged to the master. The slave's will belonged to the master. A slave was allowed no will or no ambition of their own other than the will and the ambition of their master. So they were completely submissive to the master. They owed total obedience to the will of the one who who owned them. Paul knew that he belonged to Jesus. That's why he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 about how he fought uh, to, and, and he struggled and he says to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ because he knew that he, he belonged to, to, to Jesus and he'd been purchased by him, bought by him. Jesus owned him. And so he wrestled and he fought to to, to captive, to, to take capture or captive all his thoughts, all of his will, all of his desire, so that he would please and honor and serve the one to whom he belonged. John MacArthur, in his book that's called Slave, uh, had this to say. He said, True Christianity is not about adding Jesus to my life. <laughs> Instead, it is about devoting myself completely to him submitting wholly to his will and seeking to please him above all else. It demands dying to self and following the master no matter the cost. In other words, to be a Christian is to be Christ's slave. Finally, can you identify that, Sean? Finally, there is something special that that Paul means when he identifies himself as a slave 
of Christ. Paul is saying that he has the highest and, and most honored position that one person can ever hold in life. So you see, being a slave of Jesus is the highest title of honor that any one of us might bear. Let's face it, the Bible teaches us consistently that we are all slaves. Every single person that's here or watching or listening, every single one of us is a slave unto someone or something. The question becomes, who's your master? That's what Scripture teaches us. In Romans chapter 6, verse number 16, and 16 through 18, it says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So in here, right, you're, you're a slave to, to something. You are either a slave to sin, or if you have faith, trust, believe, and surrendered your life unto our Lord, then you are a slave to righteousness. We're all slaves. Our slavery to Jesus is not something that is shameful. It's not something that we need to, to hide or try to conceal or to make apologies for. Our slavery to Jesus is a position of greatest honor that we might have. And we'll get a better understanding of this honor next week when we talk about called as an apostle. But, but it's a position of honor. And we're not the only ones who have bared that title or that position. Scripture is filled with examples. Let's highlight some this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 34. Moses was a slave to God. It says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Now we're making a transition. Uh, Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old Testament, and the Hebrew word there that's rendered as servant is the word ibad. Ibad is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and, and that word carries the same connotation of the Greek word doulos. So we see that, that Moses was the ibad, the servant, or even the, the, the slave of our Lord. You go on and see Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. It came about that after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the ibad of the Lord, died being 110 years old. 2 Samuel chapter 3. David was a slave of God. It says, Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, or my Ebod David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. The prophets were slaves of God. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse number 25. Since that day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my evads, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. In our text today, we see that Paul identifies himself as a slave of Jesus. 
But this isn't the only place that Paul identifies himself as being a slave of Jesus. He does it elsewhere in other letters. For instance, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 begins, Paul and Timothy, bondservants or doulos of Christ Jesus. That's the word that's used, doulos. Slaves of Jesus. Titus chapter 1. Paul, a a doulos of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I I want you to see this, this theme throughout all of Scripture. James, not only was James the brother of our Lord, James was also a slave of his brother. James chapter 1, verse number 1, James, a doulos of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, Peter was a slave as well. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says, Simon Peter, a doulos, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, another brother, slave. Jude verse 1 says, Jude, a doulos of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Why do we take the time to, to highlight all of those? So that we can understand the company to which we keep. As a child of God, then we are slaves of Christ. And Scripture teaches us that reality. A couple of scriptures, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 24 says, The Lord's doulos, children, slaves, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. That, that, that includes us that believe in his son. This is who he's identifying. Then he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse number 16, to act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God, as doulos of God. This is beautiful. Make no mistake, being a Christian means being a slave of Jesus Christ. We're not a servant's who get to pick and choose what we're going to do, where we're going to go, if we feel like it. No, we're called to be his slaves. Obeying the will of the master. Our will is not our will. We have no ambition outside of the will and the ambition of our Lord and Savior. That's what he expects from us. In fact, Romans chapter 10, verse number 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... Kyrios, that's slave language, people. You can't have a master without having the counter component to that master would be the slave. And that's what we are. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the main implication of our confession is that Jesus is Lord, Master owner his lordship is his ownership and his authority over his property his slaves you and me so therefore this confession that jesus is lord in making that confession we acknowledge that jesus is our owner we are his property not only that Do we acknowledge that 
we belong to him because we've been purchased by him, that we also voluntarily surrender our wills unto his, putting ourselves at his disposal. And we accept this as our natural state, and we commit ourselves to unconditional service. Philippians chapter 2 declares in verses 9 through 11, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed upon Jesus the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So may you know that the gospel is not simply an invitation to become an associate of Jesus. No, the gospel is the invitation to voluntarily enter into a life of slavery. Slavery into the King of Kings. In loving devotion, Paul enslaved himself to Christ. He was eager and willing to obey his will. The question I'll leave you with today is, that's good for Paul, but will you? Will you do the same? Will you confess that Jesus is your Lord, your Master? Will you admit that He has the right to rule and reign over your heart, your life, your everything? Will you surrender your will unto His? Will your will, your will now become the will of the Father? And will you serve Him faithfully? Let me ask you this. Do you long to hear the words when the time comes for, for Jesus to, to call you home? Do you long to hear those words as he welcomes you into his presence with, well done, thou good and faithful servant? <laughs> May you know that's not the word. It's well done, good, good, thou good and faithful doulos. It's welcome, good job, good and faithful slave. You did it. You did an awesome job. You surrendered your will unto my will. You were rightly obedient to what I had for you. Oh, that we would be slaves unto the King of Kings. That we would surrender our all. That our first and foremost objection and priority in life would to be obedient to the Word of God and to the will of God. And that's what this church needs. That's what your family needs. That's what our community needs. <laughs> More important than that, that's what each and every one of us needs. Faithful obedience to our master. May we no longer be a slave to sin. May each and every one of us confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And may we all be excited and eager to obey his will. And may we faithfully serve him in whatever capacity he's called us to serve until he calls us home. Where will you serve him? We're going to repeat this question often because we believe that every member, every child of God has a place of service unto our Lord. 
So keep on praying and asking and, and, and discovering what God's place of service means for you. Today, in just a few moments, we're going to wrap it up. But today we have a luncheon that's being held down the hallway into the fellowship hall, children's ministry. More than welcome, invited to stay, to listen, and to discover if maybe that's your place of service. This coming Wednesday night at 5 o'clock, over in the other building, in the kitchen area, I'll be hosting a, a meeting for a kitchen ministry team that we're trying to get in place for our Wednesday night meal prep and service that we're going to be offering. So if you're interested in prepping and serving, or if you're really interested in cleaning up all the mess, that'd be great. Come and be a part of that meeting at 5 o'clock. But in all of it, may we all understand that if we've confessed Him as Lord, then we belong to Him. And our lives need to start reflecting His ownership over us. Let's pray, church. Father, I thank You. Thank You for these words, the gift of Scripture that You've given unto us. And God, may we not just rush through this study, Father, but may we patiently and eagerly and expectantly and excitedly Take it all in, reflecting upon it, and making whatever decisions and changes in our lives that are necessary so that we can live right in this wrong-looking world that we're in. In this time of response, Father, I pray as decisions are made, prayers are extended, that you would be pleased by what you see in us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We're finished.